Hello, and welcome back to the Happily Ever After podcast. My name is Mason Sontag, and I will be your storyteller for today. Before we start, I want to acknowledge that I'm currently recording this podcast on Treaty 4 land in Saskatchewan, which is the traditional home of the Cree, Assiniboine, and Salto people. Today, we'll be picking up where we left off with the story The Bamboo Cutter and the Moonchild. If you haven't listened to the first part yet, pause this podcast, go back, listen to it, and then start this one. You know, we'll wait for you. Are you back? Did you like it? I hope so, because part two is going to be even better. Just as a reminder, I'm going to be reading the translation done by Yi Theodora Ozaki. Here we go. As day broke, the knights split up and began their quests. The first knight sent word to the princess that he was starting out that day on the quest of Buddha's bowl, and he hoped to bring it to her. But he had not the courage to go all the way to India, for in those days traveling was very difficult and full of danger. So he went to one of the temples in Kyoto and took a stone bowl from the altar there, paying the priest a large sum of money for it. He then wrapped it in a cloth of gold and waiting quietly for three years, returned and carried it to the old man. Princess Moonlight wondered that the knight should have returned so soon. She took the bowl from its gold wrapping, expecting it to make the room full of light, but it did not shine at all. So she knew that it was a sham thing and not the true bowl of Buddha. She returned it at once and refused to see him. The knight threw the bowl away and returned to his home in despair. He now gave up all hopes of ever winning the princess. The second knight told his parents that he needed a change of air for his health, for he was ashamed to tell them that love for the princess Moonlight was the real cause of his leaving them. He then left his home, at the same time sending word to the princess that he was setting out for Mount Horai, in the hope of getting her a branch of the gold and silver tree which she so much wished to have. He only allowed his servants to accompany him halfway, and then he sent them back. He reached the seashore and embarked on a small ship, and after sailing away for three days, he landed and employed several carpenters to build him a house, contrived in such a way that no one could get access to it. He then shut himself up with six skilled jewelers, and endeavored to make such a gold and silver branch as he thought would satisfy the princess as having come from the wonderful tree growing on Mount Horai. Everyone whom he had asked had declared that Mount Horai belonged to the land of fable, and not to fact. When the branch was finished, he took his journey home, and tried to make himself look as if he were wearied and worn out with travel. He put the jeweled branch into a lacquer box and carried it to the bamboo cutter, begging him to present it to the princess. The old man was quite deceived by the travel-stained appearance of the knight, and had thought that he had only just returned from his long voyage with the branch. So he tried to persuade the princess to consent to see the man, but she remained silent and looked very sad. The old man began to take out the branch and praised it as a wonderful treasure to be found nowhere in the whole land. Then he spoke of the knight, how handsome and how brave he was to have undertaken a journey to so remote a place as the Mount of Horai. Princess Moonlight took the branch in her hand and looked at it carefully. 
She then told her foster parent that she knew it was impossible for the man to have obtained a branch from the gold and silver tree growing on Mount Hodai so quickly or so easily, and she was sorry to say she believed it artificial. The old man then went out to the expectant knight, who had now approached the house, and asked where he had found the branch. The man did not scruple to make up a long story. Two years ago, I took a ship and started in search of Mount Hodai. After going before the wind for some time, I reached the far eastern sea. Then, a great storm arose, and I was tossed about for many days, losing all count of the points of the compass, and finally we were blown ashore on an unknown island. Here, I found the place to be inhabited by demons who at one time threatened to kill and eat me. However, I managed to make friends with these horrible creatures, and they helped me and my sailors to repair the boat and I set sail again. Our food gave out, and we suffered much from sickness on board. At last, on the five hundredth day from the day of starting, I saw far off on the horizon what looked like the peak of a mountain. On nearer approach, this proved to be an island, in the center of which rose a high mountain. I landed, and after wandering about for two or three days... I saw a shining being coming towards me on the beach, holding in his hands a golden bowl. I went up to him and asked him if I had, by good chance, found the island of Mount Horai. And he answered, Yes, this is Mount Horai. With much difficulty I climbed to the summit. Here stood the golden tree growing with silver roots in the ground. The wonders of that strange land are many, and if I begin to tell you about them, I could never stop. In spite of my wish to stay there long, on breaking off the branch, I hurried back. With utmost speed, it has taken me four hundred days to get back, and, as you see, my clothes are still damp from the exposure on the long sea voyage. I have not even waited to change my raiment, so anxious was I to bring the branch to the princess quickly. Just at this moment, the six jewelers who had been employed on the making of the branch, but not yet paid by the knight, arrived at the house and sent in a petition to the princess to be paid for their labor. They said that they had worked for over a thousand days making the branch of gold with its silver twigs and its jeweled fruit that was now presented to her by the knight, but as yet they had received nothing in payment. So, this knight's deception was thus found out, and the princess, glad of an escape from one more importunate suitor, was only too pleased to send back the branch. She called in the workmen and had them paid liberally, and they went away happy. But on the way home, they were overtaken by the disappointed man, who beat them till they were nearly dead for letting out the secret, and they barely escaped with their lives. The knight then returned home, raging in his heart, and in despair of ever winning the princess, gave up society and retired to a solitary life among the mountains. Now the third knight had a friend in China, so he wrote to him to get the skin of the fire rat. The virtue of any part of this animal was that no fire could harm it. He promised his friend any amount of money he liked to ask if only he could get him the desired article. 
As soon as the news came that the ship on which his friend had sailed home had come into port, he rode seven days on horseback to meet him. He handed his friend a large sum of money and received the fire rat skin. When he reached home, he put it carefully in a box and sent it to the princess while he waited outside for her answer. The bamboo cutter took the box from the knight and, as usual, carried it into Princess Moonlight and tried to coax her to see the knight at once. But Princess Moonlight refused, saying that she must first put the skin to the test by putting it into the fire. If it were the real thing, it would not burn. So she took off the wrapper and opened the box, and then threw the skin into the fire. The skin crackled and burnt up at once, and the princess knew that this man also had not fulfilled his word. So the third knight failed also. Now the fourth knight was no more enterprising than the rest. Instead of starting out on the quest of the dragon bearing on its head the five-color radiating jewel, he called all his servants together, and he gave them the order to seek for it far and wide in Japan and in China, and he strictly forbade any of them to return till they had found it. His numerous retainers and servants started out in different directions, with no intention, however, of obeying what they considered an impossible order. They simply took a holiday, went to pleasant country places together, and grumbled at their master's unreasonableness. The knight, meanwhile, thinking that his retainers could not fail to find the jewel, returned to his house and fitted up beautifully for the reception of the princess. He felt so sure of winning her. One year passed away in weary waiting, and still his men did not return with the dragon jewel. The knight became desperate. He could wait no longer, so taking with him only two men, he hired a ship and commanded the captain to go in search of the dragon. The captain and the sailors refused to undertake what they said was an absurd search, but the knight compelled them to at least put out to sea. When they had been but a few days out, they encountered a great storm which lasted so long that, by the time its fury abated, the knight had determined to give up the hunt of the dragon. They were at last blown on shore, for navigation was primitive in those days. Worn out with his travels and anxiety, the fourth suitor gave himself up to rest. He had caught a very heavy cold and had to go to bed with a swollen face. The governor of this place, hearing of his plight, sent messengers with a letter inviting him to his house. While he was there thinking over all his troubles, his love for the princess turned to anger, and he blamed her for all the hardships he had undergone. He thought that it was quite probable that she had wished to kill him so that she might be rid of him, and in order to carry out her wish had sent him upon his impossible quest. At this point, all the servants he had sent out to find the jewel came to see him, and were surprised to find praise instead of displeasure awaiting them. Their master told them that he was heartily sick of adventure, and said that he never intended to go near the princess's house again. Like all the rest, the fifth knight failed in his quest. He could not find the swallow's shell. By this time, the fame of Princess Moonlight's beauty had reached the ears of the emperor, and he sent one of the court ladies to see if she were really as lovely as report said. If so, he would summon her to the palace and make her one of the ladies-in-waiting. When the court lady arrived, in spite of her father's entreaties, Princess Moonlight refused to see her. The imperial messenger insisted, saying it was the emperor's order, 
Then, Princess Moonlight told the old man that if she was forced to go to the palace in obedience to the emperor's orders, she would vanish from the earth. When the emperor was told of her persistence in refusing to obey his summons, and that if he pressed to obey, she would disappear altogether from sight, he determined to go and see her. So he planned to go on a hunting excursion in the neighborhood of the bamboo cutter's house, and see the princess himself. He sent word to the old man of his intention, and he received consent to the scheme. The next day the emperor set out with his retinue, which he soon managed to outride. He found the bamboo cutter's house and dismounted. He then entered the house and went straight to where the princess was sitting with her attendant maidens. Never had he seen anyone so wonderfully beautiful. And he could not but look at her, for she was more lovely than any human being as she shone in her own soft radiance. When Princess Moonlight became aware that a stranger was looking at her, she tried to escape from the room, but the emperor caught her and begged her to listen to what he had to say. Her only answer was to hide her face in her sleeves. The emperor fell deeply in love with her and begged her to come to the court where he would give her a position of honor and everything she could wish for. He was about to send for one of the imperial palanquins to take her back with him at once, saying that her grace and beauty should adorn a court and not be hidden in a bamboo cutter's cottage. But the princess stopped him. She said that if she were forced to go to the palace, she would turn at once into a shadow. And even as she spoke, she began to lose her form. Her figure faded from his sight while he looked. The emperor promised then to leave her free if only she would resume her former shape, which she did. It was now time for him to return, for his retinue would be wondering what had happened to their royal master when they missed him for so long. So he bade her goodbye and left the house with a sad heart. Princess Moonlight was for him the most beautiful woman in the world. All others were nothing beside her, and he thought of her night and day. His majesty now spent much of his time in writing poems, telling her of his love and devotion, and sent them to her. And though she refused to see him again, she answered with many verses of her own composing, which told him gently and kindly that she could never marry anyone of this earth. These little songs always gave him pleasure. At this time, her foster parents noticed that night after night the princess would sit on her balcony and gaze for hours at the moon, in a spirit of the deepest dejection, ending always in a burst of tears. One night, the old man found her thus weeping as if her heart were broken, and he besought her to tell him the reason of her sorrow. With many tears she told him that he had guessed rightly when he supposed she did not belong to this world that she had in truth come from the moon, and that her time on earth would soon be over. On the fifteenth day of that very month of August, her friends from the moon would come to fetch her, and she would have to return. Her parents were both there, but having spent a lifetime on earth, she had forgotten them, and also the moon world to which she had belonged. It made her weep, she said, to think of leaving her kind foster parents, and the home where she had been happy for so long. When her attendants heard this, they were very sad and could not eat or drink for sadness at the thought that the princess was so soon to leave them. The emperor, as soon as the news was carried to him, sent messengers to the house to find out if the report was true or not. 
the old bamboo cutter went out to meet the imperial messengers. The last few days of sorrow had told upon the old man, and he had aged greatly, and looked much more than his seventy years. Weeping bitterly, he told them that the report was only too true, but he intended, however, to make prisoner of the envoys from the moon, and to do all he could to prevent the princess from being carried back. The men returned, and told his majesty all that had passed. On the fifteenth day of the month, the emperor sent a guard of two thousand warriors to watch the house. One thousand stationed themselves on the roof, another thousand kept watch round all the entrances of the house. All were well-trained archers, with bows and arrows. The bamboo cutter and his wife hid Princess Moonlight in an inner room. The old man gave orders that no one was to sleep that night. All in the house were to keep a strict watch and be ready to protect the princess. With these precautions, and the help of the emperor's men-at-arms, he hoped to withstand the moon messengers. But the princess told him that all these measures to keep her would be useless, and that when her people came for her, nothing whatsoever could prevent them from carrying out their purpose. Even the emperor's men would be powerless. Then she added with tears that she was very, very sorry to leave him and his wife, whom she had learned to love as her parents that if she could do as she liked, she would stay with them in their old age and try to make some return for all the love and kindness they had showered upon her during all her earthly life. The night wore on. The yellow harvest moon rose high in the heavens, flooding the world asleep with her golden light. Silence reigned over the pine and bamboo forests and on the roof where the thousand men-at-arms waited. The night grew gray towards the dawn, and all hoped that the danger was over, that Princess Moonlight would not have to leave them after all. Then, suddenly, the watchers saw a cloud form round the moon, and while they looked, this cloud began to roll earthwards. Nearer and nearer it came, and everyone saw with dismay that its course lay towards the house. In a short time, the sky was entirely obscured, till at last the cloud lay over the dwelling only ten feet off the ground. In the midst of the cloud there stood a flying chariot, and in the chariot a band of luminous beings. One amongst them, who looked like a king and appeared to be the chief, stepped out of the chariot and, poised in the air, called to the old man to come out. The time has come, he said, for Princess Moonlight to return to the moon from whence she came. She committed a grave fault, and as a punishment she was sent to live down here for a time. We know what good care you have taken of the princess, and we have rewarded you for this and have sent you wealth and prosperity. We put gold in the bamboos for you to find. I have brought up this princess for twenty years, and never once has she done a wrong thing. Therefore the lady you are seeking cannot be this one said the old man. I pray you look elsewhere. Then the messenger called aloud, saying, Princess Moonlight, come out from this lowly dwelling. Rest not here another moment. At these words, the screens of the princess's room slid open of their own accord, revealing the princess shining in her own radiance, bright and wonderful and full of beauty. 
The messenger led her forth and placed her in the chariot. She looked back and saw with pity the deep sorrow of the old man. She spoke to him many comforting words and told him that it was not her will to leave him and that he must always think of her when looking at the moon. The bamboo cutter implored to be allowed to accompany her, but this was not allowed. The princess took off her embroidered outer garment and gave it to him as a keepsake. One of the moonbeings in the chariot held a wonderful coat of wings. Another had a phial full of the elixir of life which was given to the princess to drink. She swallowed a little and was about to give the rest to the old man, but she was prevented from doing so. The robe of wings was to be put upon her shoulders, but she said, Wait a little. I must not forget my good friend the emperor. I must write him once more to say goodbye while still in this human form. In spite of the impatience of the messengers and the charioteers, she kept them waiting while she wrote. She placed the vial of the elixir of life with the letter, and, giving them to the old man, she asked him to deliver them to the emperor. Then the chariot began to roll heavenwards towards the moon, and as they all gazed with tearful eyes at the receding princess, the dawn broke, and in the rosy light of day the moon chariot and all in it were lost amongst the fleecy clouds that now wafted across the sky on the wings of the morning wind. Princess Moonlight's letter was carried to the palace. His majesty was afraid to touch the elixir of life, so he sent it with the letter to the top of the most sacred mountain in the land, Mount Fuji, and there the royal emissaries burnt it on the summit at sunrise. So to this day, people say there is smoke to be seen rising from the top of Mount Fuji to the clouds. And they all lived happily ever after. Thank you so much for listening to the second and final part of The Bamboo Cutter and the Moonchild. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you have any feedback for me or you want to hear a story, feel free to reach out to me at happilyeapodcast at gmail.com or at happilyeverafter underscore podcast on Instagram. I'll see you next week.